Hello, welcome to the Geekening Podcast. I am your more than average host because I've been doing this a couple of times now for All Ages of Geek, Will. And I have a special guest with me today. Introduce yourself, please. Hi, I'm Jen Malia, and I'm the author of Two Sticky Sensory Issues with Autism. I'm also an associate professor and creative writing coordinator at Norfolk State University. I'm happy to be here. Awesome. Happy to have you. And I do believe this is the first time on the podcast with me as the host. I have an author on. So that's great. Yeah, the first one. Great. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. This is exciting. Hey, no problem. I'm excited too. Uh, So being an inspiring writer as well, how did you get your start into writing? Yeah, it's interesting because um, it ties in a lot with my diagnosis, um, my diagnosis with autism spectrum disorder as an adult. So I, I had been writing academic publications as a professor um, before I got my diagnosis. But once I did, I wanted to write about it. So I wrote personal essays for newspapers and magazines, um, including the New York Times, Washington Post, Women's Day, Glamour and other Um, I just sort of wrote about my experiences. And um, once I had sort of a couple of those publications, I had an opportunity where a publisher was interested in having me write a children's book. So that's where Too Sticky came about. So it wasn't really something I had intended to do, but the opportunity came up. And now, I mean, I'm just really just love writing for children and I continue to write for adults too. Right. And that's great because as a kid I did grow up reading as well like a lot and it's great that kids can read about things and be like okay now I understand this more especially with things that aren't really talked about when you're a kid because growing up uh, autism was never really spoken about it but I don't know if back then it was taboo to talk about mental health more and mental illnesses, but you really didn't hear about it. Like you heard about ADHD and you heard about dyslexia, but not autism. Yeah, I agree with that. I think, um, you know, I didn't even, to be quite honest, until I got my own diagnosis, I didn't know much about autism. I didn't know there was a wide spectrum. Um, it was just actually my, my daughter was two years old at the time. My, my, um, my second child, I have three children and my second Um, child started having a lot of, you know, she had a language delay and there was a lot going on. And so I did a lot of research and it just kept coming up autism spectrum disorder. And so I spent a lot of time, hundreds of hours of doing research. And then I realized, you know what, Um, this is sounding a lot like me too. And so my daughter and I actually got diagnosed on the same day. She huh. was two and I was 39. So that's kind of where our journey started. And I wrote about that for the, the New York Times. So that was like my, the title of the article was actually my daughter and I were diagnosed with autism on the same day. So, What is it like writing for big names like the New York Times, Washington Post? Yeah, it's actually, I mean, it's such a privilege. I'm so happy that I have those opportunities because I mean, it is, um, it's not just about having a good story, but 
there's a very specific kind of, um, you know, whether you're writing an op-ed or a, um, I've done book reviews, I've done personal essays, I've done reported features. It's a completely different kind of, there's a lot of different genres within sort of, um, you know, the same newspaper. So it's kind of um, like learning how to write a personal essay is very different than learning how to write an opinion piece. And so for me, a lot of it was just sort of learning it um, as I went and having opportunities when I would pitch different ideas and having editors that were really um, helpful in helping me shape a piece, you know, so that I could have, you know, my, my voice, you know, as an autistic person, you know, there aren't a lot of autistic journalists or autistic people that are writing these pieces. And so they were always really open and allowed me to, um, you know, to write for them. So I was really privileged, I think, to have that opportunity. Yeah, and it is is great to hear more autistic people writing, you know, maybe they did get inspired by you, maybe it's something they just decided to do, but it's great that more doors are opening for more unique stories that only some people can tell. Yeah, I agree. There is, I would say, it's, like I said, I didn't really know much about the autism spectrum before I got diagnosed, but it seems like every time I'm um, every time I sort of look, there's a, a few more pieces or a few more memoirs or a few more books out there that are being, you know, um, written by autistic people. So I'm really pleased to see that sort of change because I feel that um, there's there's a lot more opportunities for for people who want to um, to tell their stories. A lot more diverse voices out there. Right. Uh, and you said you wrote multiple types of things involving autism and other things. What is your favorite style of writing? Well, I really like, um, so I kind of, I think of it as I write in a niche. So I write about all things autism, neurodiversity related, and I'm happy to write, like I said, for adults, for children, um, op-eds, book reviews, um, personal essays, children's books. I just love writing. I don't care what genre or age category it is, but I do care about the kind of advocacy work that I'm doing. Like I think of myself as, you know, that's my way of expressing, um, you know, writing not only about, you know, the autistic community, but for the autistic community. And I feel that it's the best way for me to advocate for myself, for my children, for other people. Um, So for me, that's really what I'm, what I feel is the best way for me to, to get my voice out there. Because even though I'm becoming more comfortable with public speaking and I am an English professor. So of course I do a lot of public speaking and I even teach public speaking classes, but it's, it's sort of one of those things that um, if I look back on my life, when I was growing up, I was selectively mute and I was terrified of anything public speaking. So for me, this is, writing and reading books and writing, that was really always my main form of communication. And I would say it still is, it's my strongest form of communication, even though I've now sort of adapted and you know grown more comfortable with public speaking. Right, and I'd have to agree with you on that with the public speaking, because I don't do it very well. <laughs> I don't do it very often, uh, but like one-on-one conversations like this, I could do real quick, real fast. And again, it may seem like an extrovertive thing, but I'm an introvert at my core. <laughs> I, I can name more books than I can name people. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
So was there any authors that inspired you to start writing or was it just something you decided to do? I actually was a really big fan of um, science fiction. Like I loved H.G. Wells novels and I, I read my, my specialty actually, I have a PhD in English. It's the 19th century British lit, which it's very different than what I'm doing right now. But I always loved, you know, Victorian novels. I love Jane Austen. I love a really wide range, but um, I also had a really big interest, like I said, in science fiction, like Jules Verne, H.G. Wells. And I feel like that's actually influencing um, a lot of my work now in a sort of different way, because I have um, STEM-based, um, so Two Stickies, a STEM-based picture book, and I've written some other manuscripts that are also, like I have science components. So I feel like there's, there's an influence, even though it has nothing to do with autism, it's just a lot of the ideas and sort of the, uh, the kinds of stories that you know, I enjoyed reading as a kid are somehow coming out in the, the work that I'm doing now. That's honestly really cool because again, I do like to be, I like to promote things like, hey, more people should be doing this, more people should be doing that. And one of those things is STEM. STEM is fascinating. I took a STEM course in high school. Very fun, very hands-on learning, which that is my cup of tea right there. Uh, I do believe more people, you know, men, women, children, doesn't really matter to me, but they should consider STEM an option. Especially, yeah, I, I agree. Especially how we're going into a more digital age. Right. And I think STEM too, what's one thing that I wanted to do with my work is when I write about, you know, for, for children, I don't want the book to be necessarily about autism so much as a book about an autistic girl or an autistic boy who just happens to, you know, like they're doing, they're just going about their everyday life. And so in Too Sticky, I have an autistic girl who's really into science and that's like her, um, you know, she loves science. She's worried about get her, getting her hand sticky with the slime when she's making it at school, which is kind of the conflict in the story. But ultimately it's about a girl, a girl who loves science. It's not about, you know, just being autistic, but it just has that perspective. And I think that's really important too, so that you know, autistic people and, you know, what autism is. So I do like STEM because it's an interest of mine. And I was always really sort of interested in science and even had declared a major in the sciences before I switched to English when I was in college. So it's still, I took like, you know, the pre-med requirements. I thought maybe I was going to go into medicine. I did all the organic chemistry and all those kinds of courses. And then, you know, I'm sort of using them in a very kind of, you know, just writing for kids in a more accessible way. But a lot of that background really helped me with what I'm doing now. Yeah. And you mentioned before that you really like science fiction. And I can't blame you for that because I do too. Like I own a copy of uh, The Time Machine, Journey to the Center of the Earth. Uh, still haven't read those yet. I I swear, I have a book list that, like, oh, I need to read these. It is probably over a hundred books long now. I just can't seem to find the time to read sometimes. But what I wanted to really focus on was, you know, not to date this interview, but it is the 2nd of October. Halloween's going to be here before you know it. 
but it is interesting that Frankenstein at its time was considered science fiction. Yeah, and what's interesting about that book um, is that if you take out the creation of the monster, everything else about the book isn't really, um, you know, it's like a realistic story. So I guess what I mean by that is like you could read it and then you have the creation of the monster, which gives it that science fiction element. But it and it was, um, you know, something that Mary Shelley was telling as a ghost story and then it got developed into this this novel. Um, and I think it's really interesting to think about that history and, you know, where that came from. But also that, you know, the book itself has just, it reads like any other 19th century novel, except for the creation of the creatures. So it has like that element of science fiction and it's definitely looked upon as, you know, the, um, the beginning of the genre. Right. And what I also love is Mary Shelley never tells us how the monster was created. We know it was stitched together, but we don't know how it came to life. So that lightning thing, yeah, created for the movie. <laughs> Yeah, and it's um, yeah, it's it's interesting. I think that that Mary, th there's always these questions too, because I've you know I've done some research that's surrounding it. I've taught it, you know, in some of my classes, and it's it's interesting because there's all these these questions about whether Percy Shelley was, you know, he edited the book and changed the book. Was it really his writing? And there's different edition, different versions. The 1818 version, the 1831. A lot of scholars defer to the 1818 version, thinking it was more of Mary Shelley's work and the 1831 had too much of an influence from Percy Shelley. So it's, it's, it's interesting to kind of look at that history and like how, you know, how the story was formed and um, how it was received. And I like all that kind of history too. Yeah, and I really got introduced to Frankenstein in my English class in high school but then it quickly became one of my favorite books of all time. Because if you, if you do deep dive into it and pick apart some things, the honest question of the book is, who is the monster, Victor or the literal monster he created? Yeah, and what's interesting in popular culture is there's a big confusion between, you know, people say Frankenstein and they're really referring to the monster, not you know, not Frankenstein, the scientist. So it's interesting how even just the idea of Frankenstein's monster versus Frankenstein are often, you know, they become intertwined and confused in the way that we talk about it in popular culture. And plus involving popular culture, what, if you ask me more people need to see or need to realize, depending if they know this or not, is that Victor is not a good person. <laughs> he is terrible. Yeah, the mad scientist, huh? <laughs> yeah, he's, it, it's interesting too. I really love the, uh, you mentioned earlier, the movies too. The, I think it's the 1931 James Whale directed like the black and white. Um, that version's really interesting. That, that's also that sort of iconic scene where you have like, it's alive. And yeah. you, know, you see it all the time in the commercials around Halloween and all of that. It's, it's a really great version. I always show clips of it, you know, when I'm teaching Frankenstein so that students can see all the different ways that it's been adapted. And in stories like Dracula, a mm. lot of people yeah. don't think about Dracula as being a 19th century novel as well. So we have Dr Dracula and Frankenstein have been adapted perhaps more than any other, um, 
you know, it, they, there's so many movie adaptations or even other adaptations of those works. And I think I've read that it's almost, I, I don't know, you know, if it, there's other, other novels that have been adapted more, but they're kind of near the top of, you know, the, the, the um, how many times that it's been adapted over the course of history. So ever since those novels existed, they've been adapted into many different versions. Right. And one thing I like to do every October or every Halloween is watch the original black and black and white universal movies of like mm -hmm. Dracula, Frankenstein, the Wolfman, the Invisible Man. But and I believe the Invisible Man was also a book. Yeah, there's um, so there's the uh, that's H.G. Wells as well. Invisible Man. There's, uh, right. there's also, yeah, yeah. But, there's a lot of really great H.G. Wells too. The Island of Doctor Moreau. Oh, um, that's Time a good Machine. one. Yeah, really great. And there's, yeah, there's a lot of popular culture. You know, just um, there's a lot of adapted children's versions as well. Because yeah, you think about the H.G. Wells books, like um, they're they're actually the time machine these were written for you know for children but when we think about what children's books look like now versus you know the way these stories were told for children then it's very different but if you take a look at hg wells books and the vocabulary and even just the point of view it's very different than the way we tell children's stories now there but it's but a lot of times you'll see adapted versions that are still you know coming out um even more recently just just so that those stories that, you know, children are often really familiar with from movie adaptations and things like that, and just popular culture, you know, things around Halloween, you know, they, they know about, of course, Frankenstein, but they don't know about necessarily Mary Shelley's version of Frankenstein, but there's a lot of adapted versions that tell that story in a more simplified manner so that children can enjoy storybooks about it too. Right, and it, there's even versions for like, teenagers like with the graphic novel version of some of these books too which graphic novel versions of them i have read them in high school that they, they are great they still tell the same story but it also gives you something nice to look at yeah i love graphic novels i i have a my uh, my oldest daughter is very a very big you know, fan of all the sort of Raina Tagmire and all the really popular series. You can see some of them actually up here on my shelf. Um, but those graphic novels are, I think, yeah, really great way to, I think, I mean, I think of my, my kids and, you know, all the kids growing up in the 21st century, they, they are so much more in tune with like visual and just our digital world that, you know, having like things like graphic novels is a great way to, you know, to, to keep them reading, you know, reading books and that sort of thing, different types of media, but, but also to give them visual portrayals because it's hard. I think, um, like I, I'm so much more comfortable. I have to admit reading just a book that doesn't have, um, you know, com like, com like I graphic novels for me, it's more work to read a graphic novel compared to a book just because I'm more used to reading text only. But I'm getting more used to now that, you know, I have children that love graphic novels. I'm learning almost like a new skill, like how to interpret the uh, the images alongside the text and how, you know, the sequence of movements in a graphic novel work. But I think it's interesting how um, 
I feel like my kids, because they've grown up with that, they are better readers in that way <laughs> with graphic novels. So it's interesting. Yeah. Like another person that tends to get a lot of graphic novels to like simplify their stories is actually William Shakespeare, because mm -hmm. I have seen graphic novel versions of Macbeth and they are the one in my old high school's library. It, it was good. And what I love about graphic novels, it can also show you what the characters looked like, because sometimes that's hard to visualize. Yeah, I think that's really interesting too. And I was also thinking about um, how, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Pride and Prejudice and Zombies or like- uh, Yeah, I've heard of it. I've heard of it. <laughs> I, I actually wrote a, a piece for a, a sort of a collection on Jane Austen spinoffs and sort of sensationalized versions. And it's, it's interesting to see how many different versions of, um, you know, there's like Sense and Sensibility and Mansfield Park, Crying Prejudice, all of Jane Austen's collection has really been adapted into these different spinoffs that often bring in like sea creatures and like werewolves and vampires. And like it, they take sort of the uh, pop culture that's really, um, you know, interests a lot of a lot of kids, teenagers, and like they, they bring that into these classic works. And you, you do see it with other, besides Jane Austen, I mean, you see it with other authors, classic authors as well. But it just feels like her, her collection has been, I mean, there's, there are hundreds of different adaptations that spin off from that. Pride and Prejudice and Zombies being the, maybe perhaps the most popular because there was a movie adaptation. But the number of books that I'm still seeing coming out different versions of that that classic um her classic sort of canon of literature is being adapted and graphic novels too um you know there's graphic novel versions as well yeah like it's funny that you mentioned the adaptations because roughly a year ago actually i wrote an article for all ages of geek talking about how frankenstein has changed and been adapted over time and I started off, you know, talking about Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which you have to start with the original, if you ask me. But then I moved off to Boris Karloff's version of Frankenstein, where we definitely see him as he is not as educated as the book's Frankenstein. But if you ask me, he's more sympathetic, too, because he doesn't know exactly what he is doing. Yeah, there, I think that's interesting to look at different adaptations too over time because it, it's very much evolving. Like the way that we think about um, these different stories, they can be told so many different ways. And there's different audiences that have been, you know, a, a lot of times I'll have students that have it, a lot of trouble reading like the 19th century version, like the 1818 version of Frankenstein, Mary Shelley's you know, original version. They have a lot of trouble with the language because it's so different than you know just the way a lot of people speak these days it's very different kind of language to analyze but when we, with all these different adaptations it's it's kind of like taking that story and adapting it in a way that's more accessible for a wider audience and also just um you know different forms like we were talking about graphic novels you know uh, films and you know even play adaptations and all that like there's so many different ways to tell a story yeah and again connecting it back to frankenstein i believe there's even a frankenstein musical now mm -hmm. 
I'm sure there is. <laughs> I don't think I've seen it, but yeah, I'm sure there yeah, is. I think it's I've heard the. <laughs> I think I've heard a few songs from it, and but the most poetically titled one song that I heard from the soundtrack is the modern Prometheus which was the original title of Frankenstein. And I was just like, okay, that's clever that they introduced that. Yeah, I haven't, have not, um, I'm sure there is a musical, I have no doubt, but there, cause there's, there's Frankenstein, everything pretty much. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> I believe this, like I mentioned this in my article, I believe this also like some adult rated Frankenstein stuff. So that's a bit concerning. Uh <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I bet. I mean, I I can imagine. It's it's just it's amazing how popular that that story is. It's just, but it's. I mean, like it it, it interests all ages too. It I does. mean, it was it's it's something that you know any any kid. You mentioned Frankenstein. I mean, I've got a six year old that's like obsessed with Frankenstein. He actually wants to be Frankenstein this year for Halloween. Aww. So <laughs> he loves Frankenstein and. Um, yeah, it's 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 really interesting how these these kinds of uh, w one thing I actually do with my kids. We did it last year because the pandemic last year during all Halloween right. and all that. We we had them take blank picture books and they all wrote their own spooky stories. And we we, we sort of roasted s'mores around the campfire uh, and they read their spooky stories. And so they're you know they're bringing in like Frankenstein and bats and like uh, vampires. You know all those kinds of things that you know come up around Halloween, but it's it's interesting to see how they can, you know, they, they recreate their own stories too, that bring in Frankenstein. And it's really, um, it's really great to watch them, you know, they'll act out their stories oh, you know, reading that, about the campfire using no. flashlights and stuff like that. that that's yeah. sweet. That no joke. That is, that has me grinning ear from ear right now, just hearing kids getting creative. I love that because well, as we get older, we're like, okay, our creative process is X, Y, and Z. For all we know, with little kids, sometimes the plan is G, H, F, K, just out <laughs> of nowhere sporadic, and I love that. Yeah, and my, my son, since he's six, he doesn't necessarily know how to spell all the words that are in his book, Aww. but he'll just, he'll just ask Alexa, like, how do you spell? And like, then yeah. he'll write it in his book. It's interesting how they creatively use technology to, to get the work done. You know, if they don't have a person to ask, they'll ask Alexa. <laughs> yeah. And I won't lie, I too have used Google like, okay, how do I spell this word? Because <laughs> it's a word that's not used every day. <laughs> uh, man, we could go on for hours talking about adaptations with books because then you know we have disney who's like okay this has a happy ending and the author's <laughs> just like no it doesn't like little mermaid that ending hit in hans christian anderson's the little mermaid depressing <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, and again, like how things change over time. It's weird that nowadays we see vampires as mysterious, dark, and luring. While back in the days, they were like, if you fell in love with a vampire, something's wrong with you. Because <laughs> they weren't portrayed as beautiful or handsome. They were walking corpses. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I think about Twilight or the Vampire Diaries or all the different kind of more pop cultural recent um, adaptations that I'm sure I just aren't, you know, aware of, but there's right. just so many of them. And they're just, like you said, there's a big variation. Some of them, they're like, you know, they've got, some of them are sparkling and some of them are like, you know, some of them, you know, can go out during the day and some of them cannot. And it's like, they change all of the different um, rules about what, how the vampire can interact in society or not. And it's, it's interesting. And I, I often do have you know, students read Bram Stoker's Dracula and classes that I teach if, you know, if, it, if we're studying that time period, because it's, it's really interesting too how that book shows a lot of this sort of late 19th century technology, like just, you know, blood transfusions and things like that were just starting to happen. And there's the ways in which that's captured, you know, in the uh, sort of foreground of the, or the background, I mean, of the, uh, of the text, it may not be the sort of main, the medical, um, advances weren't you know the main topic there but it was very much built into the story and when you read the details of how you know how things were um how things were done back in the 19th century that part is you know in a lot of ways based on the realities of late 19th century um medical technology and a lot of people don't think about that until you read the details it reveals a lot more about the 19th century than just kind of these these sort of, you know, the myths and um, legends and, and such about vampires. All right. And also with Bram Stoker's uh, Dracula, you think it it's going to start off on this deep and dark stormy night? No, it starts <laughs> off with a real estate agent writing in his <laughs> journal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's great. And, um, I'm, try, I'm trying to remember the, uh, the, the, one of the adaptations that I really enjoyed that I think it's actually titled Bram Stoker's Dracula and it had Anthony Hopkins and um, I'm trying to remember who else in it who was playing Mina um, but it had a lot of it was a really great adaptation I can't remember now which uh, which one it was it also had um, uh, I'm not going to be remember but anyway there's there's some really great ones um, that try to stay sort of sort of um true to the the novel in a way so you know in other words not not necessarily adapting it scene by scene but just i really appreciate ones that try to capture some of the same details you know they're in the original original novel version and so that one where anthony hopkins is starring um and i think it it was quite a ways back now i'm thinking like it might have been in the 90s but um, uh, i looked it up uh, yeah, you were right. It is Bram Stoker's Dracula with Anthony Hopkins, and it was 1992. Okay, 1992. That that is one of my favorite versions. Usually, I will show some clips from that if I'm teaching Dracula, and I just love the way that it it captured a lot of the other details that I think a lot of other versions just leave out. Some of the sort of um, 19th century, you know, like I was saying, how the book itself lets you in on sort of some of the uh, just technology advances and such that were going on at the time, that that movie also, I think, captures that in the backdrop of the movie. So you can get a sense of sort of the uh, the era that in which, you know, that that novel was set. So that's why I really appreciated that adaptation. Yeah. And also what I think is 
interesting to read stories that are set like in the industrial revolution because they're just looking at the world like yeah things are changing and we don't know if we can keep up yeah yeah i, I do i think that's really interesting too just the 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 era in which a lot of these stories that are classics were written um you can learn a lot from just um looking at you know the details in the in the scenes that are created in, the, in these classic works of literature yeah like if you ask me like there are a few big things that always get changed or adapted a lot one of them is the victorian era books as we discussed you know with frankenstein dracula so on and so forth but also ancient like greek and roman myths also get adapted a lot like clash of the titans the percy jackson series yeah yeah you're right and i think that it's it is interesting how a lot of these these sort of timeless stories they get re you know readapted um for different generations and i i think that's really interesting that they they have like you know they they just they live on in different versions and different um and and just you know that they just continue to to be adapted and readapted and there's a lot of spin-offs you know where you just take the characters and put them in a completely different world or ones that sort of carry on from where the other story left off so i love sort of both of those versions whether it's a spin-off or like a, just a completely different um different version if that makes sense so yeah, different version, like, again, the Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, or, like, Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. Yeah, yeah, I forgot about that one, but yes, <laughs> that one was really interesting, too. I never read it, <laughs> personally. Maybe I'll have to do that, add that to the list that's ever-growing and will <laughs> never shrink. <laughs> yeah, the list, I mean, my to-be-read list is also very long, and it's, it. There's always more things coming out that are really interesting too. So it's hard to keep up with. And I mean, I, I read a lot of the same things my kids read too, because as a children's book author, I'm writing for children. So I read a lot of books that are written for children, sort of part of my research, but also just like to um, help me with the, the voice. Like, you know, if I'm working on a middle grade novel, which I'm doing now, I'm reading a lot of middle grade books and you know, I read chapter books because I write chapter books and picture books because I write those. And, and so those are all different too. And the, you know, the way that they're, they're written for different audiences. And it's, it's really, I think, um, a lot of people think it's easy to write for children because, well, you know, children aren't going to be as picky about, you know, <laughs> well, to be honest, they're the sort of pickiest readers that can be because to keep a child entertained, you know, to actually read a book as opposed to use their tablet or do something else, it's really hard. Like my kids are my first readers. Like if I write something and if I can't entertain them with what I write, then I know I'm in trouble because, you know, my, my kids have to be entertained. You know, it's being a writer is being an entertainer. You have to think about the audience you're trying to reach. So if you tell your story in a way that's not going to capture the attention of the age group that you're writing for, then, then, you know, you're not going to get your message across. So you can have a great story to tell and, if, you know, the way you tell it isn't effective, then it's not going to get across. So I always use my kids as my first readers and then, you know, other kids and other children's book writers that I know. And it's just, I think a lot harder. I find it a lot harder to write 
a book for children than to write an essay for the New York Times. And they're very different, but right. <laughs> what, you know, one is very different than the other. But um, I think that it is hard to write books for children. And I think the, the sort of assumption is that, you know, it's easy to be a children's book writer, you know, versus like writing ad adult novels or adult, you know, nonfiction, things like that. But I mean, I could say I haven't written adult, you know, books, but I have written adult content in like newspapers and magazines and writing for that age group, in my opinion, is easier than writing for children because it's, it's different perspective. And I'm writing, you know, I have to kind of reach into my inner, like, you know, what it was like when I was a child and try to like recreate that in the things that I write. Right. And one thing that I think people who don't write for children, you know, like, oh, it's easy. You just put words on paper. Kids will read anything. Uh, they need to realize that you also can't insult the kid's intelligence because sometimes kids are a lot smarter than we give them, especially when they have the Internet at their fingertips now. Yeah. And kids don't like when you make lessons, like obvious that you have to make it like there could be your characters can learn a lesson, of course, like so the kids can learn from the things they read, but you can't be too didactic or, you know, you know, they can smell that like miles away. They're like, you know, you're trying to like teach me a lesson. You know, they don't, they don't want, they want to be entertained just like anyone else that's reading books, but um, they want to learn things, of course, but they, they need to learn it in a really subtle way. And I think that's that's the part that's like the most um, difficult to, you know, when I, I teach children's book workshops and, and such to sort of sometimes experienced writers, you know, fiction writers or, you know, students who have taken fiction workshops, like they know how to, you know, build scenes and write um, fiction. But when it comes to writing for kids, the sort of big leap is, you know, how, how you can write it in a way that it's accessible language for children so they can you know they're it, and it's in the voice of a child so like you can read it and it might be really well written but it doesn't sound like a child would say that or a child wouldn't think that they wouldn't think through that that um that that moment in that scene the same way an adult would think through it so a lot of times when you have an adult writing a kid's book they're almost like putting their adult perspective into the voice of the child, which does not work. So it's like learning, learning how to, you know, think like a child when you're, when you're writing um, a book can be difficult, especially if you don't have children sort of around you. I have three of them that are six, eight, nine around me all the time. And so I thought, you know, that kind of kid perspective, just sort of a uh, as a mom, just, you know, of sort of living and breathing at every minute of the day, but it can be hard. I think if, um, if you're not around a lot of children to write books for kids. So reading a lot of them helps though, too. That's kind of my, my advice. If you want to write for kids, you have to read a lot of kids books. And I mean, like a lot, a lot, like hundreds of books in the same category that you want to write. It. And that kind of will absorb the language, the voice and the characters and that sort of in that way. Right. And also with the, hey, you're trying to teach me a lesson. That also adds the added layer of, okay, now I have to more or less hide the hero's journey, but keep the hero's journey. 
Yeah. And I think kids are more receptive to the hero's journey than like, say, if you're like, well, make sure you don't fight with your sister, you know, like that kind of lesson where it's like hitting them over the head with something that's just like, you know, that's something my mom would tell me, you know, <laughs> that kind of uh, language. You'll sometimes see that in early drafts of books that are, you know, being more didactic and um, yeah, but kids, yeah, they, they, they actually, um, I think pick up on a lot of the, you know, just the, the kind of lessons that, that, you know, you can't, and I mean, a good, a good writer shows rather than tells, I mean, I'm sure a lot of writers have heard that before, but a lot of times, um, you don't really think of it. The telling is doesn't always have to just be a lesson, but basically immersing, um, a reader in the story so they can experience it just like the child in the book. So, you know, that's, that's, that's the reason that showing is so more, much more important than telling, because if you're just telling the reader how to experience the story, then they're not going to be as interested in it. Right. And I, uh, uh, if I could get my words out today, <laughs> uh, one thing I do enjoy is when book show instead of tell because some worlds are just fascinating and filled with like hundreds if not thousands of pages of lore in their stories yeah yeah I think um and and show versus tell it's kind of interesting because with kids books there is some telling um in the sense that like you you can't, so if you're writing like, let's say a children's picture book, there's only so many scenes that could be developed in a short book like that. And so right. there's, there's not as much sort of um, like, it's a very brief, but every word, every line is so important in those books. So you can't be, you can't go on and on. And when you're telling your story, you have to be extremely brief, but you still need to get some interiority, like inside the character's head. You need, you still need a couple lines of dialogue normally. And you so there's but there's um there's two stories in a picture book um there's the story that's told in the illustrations and then the story that's told in the words and so in a lot of ways like I was talking about graphic novels you know that's a different reading experience because you've got panels but with picture books you have you know a spread where you have um you know you're you're reading the illustrations alongside the text but the illustrator can have a completely different sort of subplot or storyline that's going on in the background like sometimes you'll see children's book illustrators they'll put like a pet or something that's not mentioned in the text but the pet is doing different things um, in the background and it kind of creates a different a different thread to the story so I think that's really interesting too when you're telling stories how how the you know images can impact the way the text is read right and also, if you're just writing a book, like, it doesn't have to be a children's book, just a book in general with no pictures, the author now has another job in painting, but with words. Yeah, you're right. And what's interesting is when you're writing a children's picture book, you have to kind of leave out a lot of the adjectives and uh you know, I mean, definitely the adverbs as well. But um, I would say that, like, for example, if the if you if you have in the text that the character's wearing a red sweater, and that's not important to the actual story, it's best to just leave it out of the text and then just have the illustrator can decide whatever color they want the sweater to be. It doesn't matter. Um, 
you know, or you can put an illustration note telling the illustrator, well, the sweater does have to be read because it does matter to the story, but I'm not going to mention it in the text. So that, that's kind of an interesting way to think about writing. You have to sometimes write an illustrator note because you're not putting it in the text and it's something that you do feel needs to be part of the story, you know, but told in the illustrations. And then when you're writing a novel, like let's say a novel for adults and there are no pictures, like you said, you have to really immerse the reader. The world building has to be there. Like you have to, it, um, it, for the reader to really be immersed and feel like they're there, you need to bring all those details into the story. Right. And as you mentioned a while ago before that you're working on some books, could you tell us about any of those? Or... Well, I have some books that are unannounced, um, but under contract. So I can't talk about uh... those specifically, but I can mention sort of that I, I write all of my books have like neurodivergent characters. And so there will be more books coming out that are, um, you know, that like, I guess, like I mentioned this earlier too, I don't write books that are necessarily about autism so much as just books that have autistic characters or neurodivergent characters who, who are just going about their everyday life. And that's sort of the theme in um, my upcoming books as well. And I am working on a middle grade science fiction um, novel that, um, that is still in progress. And that's sort of my main, um, my main project right now. So I'm reading a lot of science fiction, like contemporary works that are coming out. Um, and yeah, it's been really fun because I think for me, middle grade, which is for eight to 12 year olds, that's like the target age group. Although a lot of adults, including me, <laughs> read these middle <laughs> grade books. There's a lot of crossover, but um, they're intended for the eight to 12 year old um, age group. And middle grade novels, um, you know, they they tend to be, you know, anywhere from like, um, they could be like 30,000 words. And then the sci-fi ones tend to be in the upper range, maybe like 55,000, 60,000 words. So they, these are still like pretty substantial. They're, they're full novels. They're just a bit shorter than, you know, the, uh, young adult or adult, um, novels, but it's been a real challenge because I tend to write shorter things. I mentioned, I write, you know, op-eds, book reviews, um, personal essays and short picture books and chapter books even are, you know, much shorter as well. So this is my first attempt at writing like a full length novel. And I found that to be challenging in sort of a different way. When you're really used to writing shorter pieces, how do you structure the plot of a much longer work? And that's something that I'm sort of still in the process of learning. That's uh, cool. Like I really never, growing up I didn't really pay attention to the age ages on the book I was just like oh that looks interesting I'm going to read it uh but again with like what you're working on I won't delve deeper into that I would hate to be the one who gets you into trouble you know hate to be that guy uh but now you said that you read a lot growing up and you still do right mm -hmm. okay Here's a tough question. What's your favorite book? Oh, that's such a hard question. But I will say Pride and Prejudice. So Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice is my all-time favorite book if I have to pick one. And that is an adult book from the 19th century. But um, that's actually part of the reason that I ended up specializing in 19th century British lit. I just loved 
hmm. reading um, Jane Austen's work. And it's very different than the stuff I write, but um, I would say, you know, I really liked her, um, her sarcasm and just really liked, I just, I love the 19th century. I love, I love watching, um, you know, kind of adapt adaptations to 19th century novels. And I, I also just, um, I think a lot of what I read now is more, like I said, it's more focused on the things that I'm writing. So right now it's a lot of middle grade science fiction, but one comment you made really, um, I thought was interesting about how you don't really pay attention to the age categories. It's, it's interesting that really children's books didn't become this kind of, not the way they are now where we have these different categories, middle grade, a young adult. That wasn't really something until like Harry Potter made this huge splash and then Hunger Games. Like that was when the children's book industry really took off. And so that's when we started getting these middle grade category for eight to 12 year olds. And then the um, sort of 12 to, I guess it's like, I think young adult sort of starts at 12 and I guess would go up to about um, 18, something around there. And then, so the, these sort of defined categories wow. and then picture books are four to eight year olds normally. And then chapter books, which is like the um, books that are in chapters, but not quite a novel. Those books are usually about seven to 10 year olds. And then you have like, sometimes they'll separate out and say that early middle grade is more for the eight to 10 year olds. So there's like all these different age categories that really, you know, that wasn't something that, that wasn't how books were, were talked about or marketed, you know, before we had these sort of blockbuster books like um, Harry Potter that really changed the scene for um, children's books. And I think definitely when I was growing up, I mean, there was no, distinctions like that and it was yeah like you said it was just books that you wanted to read and I read a lot of Nancy Drew mysteries when I was growing up that was kind of one of my favorite series I always loved mysteries and science fiction and all those different genre like um, kinds of books so yeah like <laughs> it's kind of funny that you mentioned Nancy Drew because when I grew up I read the Hardy Boys <laughs> So we just yeah. have the two, you know, teenage detectives working right here with Nancy Drew. And actually, I believe nowadays Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys have done a couple crossover books, which that's yeah. uh, hard to believe that crossover books are now a thing. Because, again, growing up, that really wasn't the case. I also love babysitter clubs. And now my my daughter, is um, she's nine. She reads all the um the graphic novel babysitters club series and so it's like my kids are reading different adaptations of some of the books that I read when I was younger and it's yeah. interesting how those those get again adapted into different versions for different eras and different ages yeah which I've recently been seeing that because uh, one of my favorite book series growing up as a kid was Goosebumps mm, you know written yeah. by R.L. Stein. And nowadays I'm going to the bookstore and I just see this book. And I'm like, oh, I remember that. And it has like a completely different cover. And I'm like, oh, wait, yeah, I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> like, what, what happened to this cover? Oh, it, it changed because it got reprinted. Reprinting exists. <laughs> but I grew up with this when I was a kid. It wasn't that long ago. It was that long ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... 
bringing up, you know, being a fan of some series, being a being a writer. What is your opinion on the book versus movie discussion? You know, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of times where I'll watch, you know, if there's like a Netflix series or something, I'll I'll see the 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 TV series or the movie before I'm even aware of there being, you know, a book. And then sometimes it's the opposite where I've read a book that I really loved. And then there's this adaptation that comes out, this movie or, or um, TV series. And it's interesting because, I mean, I always think of them as they're very different. Um, no book will ever be captured exactly scene for scene because you would have to have a, a TV series or a movie that was so long just to be able to get all of the scenes and all the pages and everything that happens anyway. And it wouldn't be that interesting because it's a different form um, if you had to go, you know, scene by scene, everything that happened in the book. So I do think of them as very different, but I appreciate when there's like, there's a lot of overlap, but like, I don't like a lot of times where there's details changed in a book that I love and just sort of changed just because, and there's not really a good reason for completely changing it. It just spins off in a different direction. But then I also remind myself, I'm like, well, you know, it's just a different version. It's not intended to reenact what happened in the book. So, you know, there's like the creative license of the, um, you know, the adapters, they can, they can come up with their own version. So it's interesting because some series, I think, stick more closely to the book version and others deviate so far away that you can't even imagine they're the same thing. It's like, they're using the same names, but like other than that, you know, what is the connection? It's like you have completely different character development, different world building and everything else. So I think it's interesting. I always tell my students when we're talking about, you know, film versions, TV versions of books, like we have to treat them separate. We can't just, and then I also remind them, make sure you read what's on the syllabus. Don't just go watch the movie version because you're not going to get the right content. Right. It's going to be different. You know, it's not the same thing. It's different. So kind of if you think of it that way, these are different things that are kind of around the same subject matter. It, it helps a lot to think of it that way. Yeah. And like one book series I read in like elementary school, but still stuck to me because of how much I enjoyed it, you know, because, you know, that's stuff like that can happen, uh, was the Spiderwick Chronicles. And I love that series. Then the movie came out and the movie's ending is so much different. Like it was good. It was good. It was good. Then it took a left turn out of nowhere, <laughs> left me in shock, left my mother in shock, left my father, father didn't really care because he never read the books. <laughs> but just wait on a left turn, and we're just like, where'd that come from? <laughs> but yeah, it's I think it's interesting because when you like you were saying, when you love a book, you almost want it to be. I mean, I do too. I want it to be as close as possible to the to the book I love because I want to see it enact. It's almost like I want to see um a film version of something I love the reading experience with like I want to re-experience it in a different medium and then sometimes that disappointment comes from well okay so you got some of what I liked but you know what happened to that ending you know right. so it's it is interesting because I do feel the same way about some of them the ones you're really really like interested in seeing enacted in a film it, it can be very disappointing when it turns out differently yeah, and I suppose it 
it wouldn't be too far off to make this comparison that a book to a movie is kind of like a game of telephone. You know? Because something's changed between people and telephone until you get something unrecognizable sometimes. Or maybe you get lucky and it's actually kind of close. Yeah, and I I do think some, some creators, because there's, you know, if you have someone that's adapting something into a film version, they're, they're, they're sometimes, I think, taking, they're not trying to keep it the same way because they feel like they have a different vision to make it better. Or, you know, I'm going to take these great characters from this book, but I'm going to make my own version of it because I think I can do it better. So, like, I think there's also that kind of creative, um, like, I'm going to adapt it, but this, this story would be so much better if these characters did this instead of that. And probably there's also just, if this is a film, the stuff that was great in the book isn't really going to look so great when you put it in the film version. So we're going to change that. So I think there's like so many different considerations with it. Sometimes it's just, they don't interpret it the same way as the author originally intended. And then other times it's just, they think they can do better. And you also have to remember with, comparing the books to the movies that movies have a little magical thing called a budget (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah now do i believe if given an unlimited amount of budget someone could make a good movie based off of a good book and have it nearly seen for scene but have a few differences and people would still like it yes but admittedly sometimes you do have to cut corners yeah yeah i agree Uh, all right. Is there anything else you want to discuss before this interview is uh, over? Any last words for the listeners? No, I, I just, my advice for writers, um, if there's any writers listening, is just, you know, you kind of don't give up and just keep going. Um, this industry, like if you want to publish books traditionally, it's really tough. But it, if you take all the right steps and keep working at it, work hard, read lots of books, take workshops, you know, get critique partners. Um, Because a lot of times I get this question, you know, from students who are, they're kind of obsessed with the publishing part of it and want the sort of, you know, fame of being an author, but you got to be willing to put the work in. And it's a lot of work. Like I can tell you, I've been writing for a really long time. I mean, I've been, you know, just uh, working on I did a PhD program and, you know, I've done a lot of writing and you never stop learning it. It just, I still feel like at least when it comes to children's books that I'm more of an emerging writer, you know, I, it's still a new category for me. And there's a lot of, the learning curve is really big. So um, I would just say, if you want to be an author, if you want to be, you know, a writer for newspapers, magazines, just don't give up and keep putting in the work and learning from other people that, that do what you want to do, like how you can take the steps to get there. All right. Uh, thank you, Jen, uh, for being a guest on the Geekening podcast. This was great. Thank you for having me. This is great. Hey, no problem. And with that, dear listeners, this brings us to the saddest part of the Geekening podcast, which is the end. Have fun. Listen to the other podcasts on allagesofgeek.com. We have a whole list. And we also have podcasts, most likely, wherever you can find a podcast. 
Thank you and good night. Hey, what's up, geeks? It is Matt coming to you once again to let you know that without your support on Patreon and in the comments, we really can't do any of this. We are an entirely community-supported operation. And, uh, well, you're our community. So, you stay weird, you stay wonderful, and we'll catch you next time.